0: Welcome to Season 3 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows, and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have Dr. Tony Greco, medical oncologist at Tennessee Oncology and one of the foremost experts on the treatment of cancers of unknown primary. And we ask him to come by and talk to us about the role that precision medicine has played in improving our diagnosis and treatment of this rare and very difficult to treat disease. Dr. Greco, thank you for being a guest on the podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: So when, when I do my you know, background research on our guest, Dr. Greco, uh, I found something really interesting that stood out, among other things. But you left a post as the medical director or the director of medical oncology at a leading and some might say prestigious academic center so you can do more clinical trial work in the community. And I don't know how that sounds to some of our listeners, but when I heard that, I was like, huh? You know, tell us about what led to that decision.
2: Yeah, well, you know, uh, clinical research in oncology has always been important, uh, particularly several years ago, you know, because we couldn't treat many of these patients very well. So we needed to do uh, important critical research to determine better therapies, And there was nowhere to do that in the the early 1970s, except in major institutions. So I went to a major institution and had an opportunity there, and we did did well. We designed lots of studies, we got grants, and we trained a lot of oncologists, as did many other major institutions around the country. And as that happened, the oncologists, many of them, went into private practice and communities, and the number of patients being sent to major universities like where I was, was drying up. And uh, therefore we were just seeing the more complex cases that had already been treated. And most of the cases in the community weren't, weren't being placed on any research studies. So that became obvious. And uh, I had an opportunity along with uh, my associates to, get support from a private institution. So we decided to go across the street here in Nashville and we uh, joined Tennessee Oncology and we uh, set up and ran the Sarah Cannon Cancer Center, which uh, Sarah Cannon's the name of Minnie Pearl. Many of you may not know that. but mm-hmm. And we developed a research program here and had access to many, many patients. It grew. We formed a research institute a few years later, which has become, uh, you know, a global research institute, one of the largest in the country. All private, and all uh, patients come from basically private practices. And we've published a lot, and I think we've done uh, fairly well in helping, you know, advance the field, the therapy for patients with advanced cancer. So the reason. Uh, I left there was, uh, for even a better opportunity. It was, uh, it was a, it was a gamble, but it looked like, it looks like it paid off for for what we were interested in doing and for patients.
1: So Karen, hey, that Sarah Cannon is Mini Pearl, uh, that may date some of our, our podcast listeners. That's good for trivia. That's Minnie Pearl from he-haw Fang. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's awesome.
1: So so Dr. Greco, you, you went and you co-founded the Sarah Cancer Research Institute. You became uh, the medical director there. Um, Tennessee Oncology today enrolls more patients in clinical trials than any private practice in the US. And you're also one of the most successful phase one clinical trial programs in the world. How are you able to achieve this level of success in the community cancer setting?
2: Was with, with a lot of support, both from uh, dedicated, intelligent people who we recruited to having the appropriate uh, background, you know, and, and people working with us in the data management, uh, computer facilities, everything that's necessary. So we had financial support, and we had people support, and we had patience and we had knowledge because we. We trained, several of us who came here, trained to do clinical research. Uh, And therefore, we had all the ingredients to make this successful. And thankfully, that's exactly what's happened. It's grown far beyond my expectations. But that's uh, basically uh, how it evolved.
1: It takes a team. So what... So for our listeners, as we get into cancers of unknown primary, can you, can you define exactly you know, what they I mean, maybe it's self-explanatory, but I think it's well, a little deeper than that. Yeah, fine.
2: Uh, this is really not rare. I noticed you said that earlier, and a lot of people think it's rare, but it's not, it's not very rare. What it is, is a patient who has uh, advanced metastatic cancer, but it's uncertain where it arose from. They have, they have metastasis or spread, but a uh, complete evaluation uh, does not reveal where the origin of the cancer was, where it spread from, where it started. And it represents about 3% of all patients with advanced cancer, so it's not rare at all. We could go into the reasons why people think it's rare, because they often just go ahead and def- uh, arbitrarily state that this is from the lung or this is from the... Intestine when really they don't even know that. But when they do that, it gets recorded as a primary cancer rather than an unknown primary cancer. And uh, this is a common entity, and I've been interested in it for many decades in these patients because I was fascinated on how this occurred. And I think we've learned a lot on how it's occurred. Most of these patients, in fact, do have a very small primary which then spreads, but we can't find that very small uh, or otherwise occult primary. We can find them at autopsy in most patients, and they're very small, yet they can spread in the metastasis are easy to find, and that's how the patients present. We don't know why this occurs, but it happens in many different types of cancers. So cancer of unknown primary is not a single cancer. It's a syndrome of many different cancers. The common element is that the primary, where the cancer started, is too small to find during clinical examination when the patient, you know, is alive. And uh, therefore, it becomes difficult to treat such patients, and uh, that's is evolved over time. And now we can find the cancer type in most patients and we can treat them accordingly.
1: Yeah, you, um, from what I can find, it shows that you have been um, the lead or co-author on over 650 publications and peer reviewed journals on the topic. Um, How did you gravitate towards treating this patients as your specialty?
2: Yeah. Well, my publications aren't all on this particular uh, syndrome of cancer of unknown primary site, but many of them are. And uh, I became interested in this because I, it, during the time when I was training in oncology and later in academic practice right across the street over there, we saw many types of cancer and we concentrated on the more treatable types. Uh, and I won't go into that because there are a lot of types we couldn't treat very well and you just gave those patients, you know, symptom management. You cared for them, but you there was no specific treatment that could help them. That's changed a whole lot. And then when I saw these patients with unknown primary cancer, we couldn't really determine back in those years what they had. But we did, we did do uh, autopsies, as I mentioned, and it became obvious that they had very small, undetectable primary sites during life, but we could find most of them during the uh, autopsies, yet they could spread. So this became a fascinating medical uh, mystery. And uh, that's what we've studied, what I've studied over the years. And it's becoming more and more clear how this develops and what happens. And these patients uh, have various types of cancer. And uh, when it metastasizes or spreads, we can then treat them according to the type of cancer they have. And in many instances, we can treat them more successfully now than ever before because we can uh, diagnose the type of cancer that they actually have and where it's coming from.
1: Yeah. On the topic of of diagnosing and finding more information about these patients' tumors, you know, I would imagine if there's a tumor type that should be treated with a precision medicine approach based on uh, genetic or genomic expression, it would seem that these types of tumors should be the case, right? Um, what diagnostic tools exist that have helped inform treatment decision for these patients over the years?
2: yeah well, uh, early on in the development, again, but I predated even this development in seeing these patients uh, immunohistochemical stains, particular stains that pathologists use uh, which uh, can pick up proteins and cells. Uh, were were developed and have continued to develop. And these stains can often, when they're used together in panels, can give us a very good idea of the type of cancer that we're dealing with in patients that have cancer of unknown primary site. So immunohistochemical staining is very important. However, it still leaves a large number of patients where the stain simply cannot give us an answer of what type of cancer the patient has. Probably at least half or a little more. We still don't know by using the stains. So then uh, along came uh, molecular testing. And uh, you know, again, uh, we call these molecular cancer classifier assays, and um, they're they're run through nucleic acids, either RNA or DNA. And because of these nucleic acids, are, are the basis of protein synthesis in all cells, and I mentioned the immunohistochemistry is looking at the proteins, mm-hmm. whereas uh, these molecular cancer classifiers are looking at the, uh, the chemicals that actually are responsible for uh, protein synthesis. And basically, when cancers develop, they 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 develop from normal cells, and those normal cells all secrete some sort of protein. For an example, uh, breast cells secrete certain proteins which eventually gonna make milk. The ducts in, in female breast, for instance. Uh, there are many other examples. And when cancers develop in those cells, they often retain that that protein mechanism that they have in their normal cells within the cancer cells. So if we can detect that, then we can determine the type of cancer the patient has. And that's a simplified explanation of these molecular cancer classifier assays, which have been developed. And there's really only one on the market at this time that's been validated, and that's the uh, RT-PCR-92 gene test cancer type ID. And I've been uh, having experience with this since 2008. Many others have as well. And this, when added to immunohistochemistry, uh, along with the clinical findings in the patients, we can determine the type of cancer the patient has in about 90 to 95% of the time. And if we determine the type of cancer a patient has, then we can determine what the best treatment is for that particular cancer type. And... uh, You mentioned that it would seem that genomic expression might be even more important in these patients, and perhaps it is more important only because these patients represent so many different types of cancers. Mm -hmm. We now know that certain cancer types, when we know the cancer type, have certain genomic changes in the cancer cells which are highly treatable, lung cancers, breast cancers, kidney cancers. I could go on and on. There are many others. Uh, Now can be treated much more effectively with so-called targeted drugs if the patients have the genomic target present in their cancer cells or immunotherapy, which has been a major advance in the treatment of patients with metastatic cancers. Not every patient with metastatic cancers, but many of them. So if one knows what type of cancer a patient with cancer of unknown primary has, then we can uh, use the therapy that we would use for that type of cancer uh, when, we, uh, when it's not an unknown primary cancer. I hope you're following me there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, so we need to know the type of cancer. That's critical. And then we need to know what type of genomic alterations, mutations, are within the cancer cells, and uh, that's a different form of molecular testing than determining the type of cancer uh, that a patient has. Again, we only use molecular cancer classifier assays in patients when we're uncertain of the tumor type. Most of these patients have cancer of unknown primary type as mentioned. If we know where the primary is and we can tell from our clinical examination and medical imaging, then we uh, don't need a molecular cancer classifier assay.
1: Yeah. You mentioned that uh, 92% of these patients that uh, will undergo uh, a, a classifier assay will eventually receive a diagnosis, a definitive diagnosis. What What about the other 8%? How do you approach therapy with those patients?
2: Yeah, th- those patients are very problematic because then we re- simply do not know the tissue of origin. The minority of patients, we have no idea where it's coming from. And in that group of patients, I, I like to use next-generation <coughs> sequencing, or comprehensive molecular profiling, looking for genetic alterations within their cancer cells. This can be done uh, with tissue-based testing or now what's known as liquid biopsies. Mm -hmm. And in that small group of patients, we might be able to find an important uh, target to, to help treat these patients. Otherwise, all we can do is what we call empiric chemotherapy, which we use for all patients several years ago. It's just shotgun therapy of certain chemotherapy drugs that work in some cancers but don't work in others. And that does help some people. That's empiric chemotherapy. I no longer like to recommend that, except sometimes in this group of patients that you just mentioned, the small percentage where we cannot determine the cancer type.
1: The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this.
0: With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and pairs to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which treatments are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit trapellohealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based treatment options when time matters most.
1: When you are using the molecular identifier, um, or is it, do most folks call it a cup test?
2: Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure most call it that, but uh, they could call it a cup molecular test to determine the tissue of origin, or the, yeah, you could call it that. It's basically a, it, this test can be done on known cancer types. But there's no reason to do it on known cancer types because you already know the cancer type, Mm -hmm. except when in some instances, relatively rare, the, the subtype is not really known. For instance, in lung cancers, there are many subtypes. And if a patient has a lung cancer and the pathologists aren't sure of the subtype, then the molecular classifier like the cancer type ID can be useful. But for all practical purposes, the majority of patients where these cup molecular testers are being utilized, we don't know the particular cancer origin or cancer
1: type. Right. How are these, how are these tests validated, and, and what is the data that demonstrates benefit for patients?
2: Okay. That's, that's a rather good but complex question. The first step is these tests that uh, purport or say that they can determine the cancer type, they have to be validated in known cancer types. Mm. In other words, you have to take a series of patients with lung cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer. I could go on and on up to about 32 different cancer types and more than 50 subtypes. They have to be validated. In other words, a group of pathologists can, uh, which, and, and oncologists know certain known cancers, and then these molecular tests have to be run on those cancers, the tissue, and you have to validate how accurate they are in determining the known cancers. You following me there? Absolutely. Okay. So... That's the first step. And uh, if they're validated in known cancers, then the next step is you have to validate it in patients with cancers of unknown primary site. The reason you have to do that is cancers of unknown primary site are not totally similar to the cancers which arise from sites which we know are known cancer sites. And the reason they're not similar Is probably because there's a genomic cause, either genetic or what we call epigenetic, cause for the reason that the primaries in unknown primary cancer are so small and they can't be detected, yet they metastasize and the metastasis grow and that's what is detected. There's a molecular difference between cancer of unknown primary and cancers of known primary. Therefore, these molecular tests have to be validated in those patients with unknown primary cancer in order for oncologists and pathologists to feel confident that the diagnosis is correct. Knowing that the diagnosis is correct in patients with known cancers, is not the same as knowing it's correct in patients with unknown primary cancers. So one has to validate this molecular test in patients with unknown primary cancers, which is not as easy, but it can be done.
1: Well, there are a number of patients who listen to our podcast and I know, um, I mean, you understand the patient experience and journey to finding the right diagnosis. Um, what's some of the frustrations that patients express to you by the time they are referred or find you, um, to, to get treatment for a cancer of unknown primary, or maybe they've been to, um, a system that just doesn't diagnose their cancer at all. And they, they continue to have problems. What should they, how should they think about that or what course should they take?
2: Well, it is frustrating for patients and for many, uh, physicians, oncologists, and others, because, um, you know, the, it's, they fit into a category where uh, their provider or their physician or nurse can't tell them what, exactly what type of cancer they have. And that you can understand the frustration there. Uh, again, uh, with the diagnostic technology we have today, particularly with uh, sophisticated pathology, immunohistochemistry, the molecular test, about, we've already discussed uh, more than 90% of these patients, we can tell them where the cancer is coming from, and we can explain to them how uh, that the cancer is too small. This is the usual situation to to find, yet it can spread. That frustrates them too. They don't understand why that can happen, but it certainly can. I mean, very small cancers that we can see can cause diffuse uh, large metastasis. Uh, So certainly cancers we can't see uh, because they're just too small for the test to be able to demonstrate them can also do the same thing. And as I mentioned, we know that from the past from many post-mortem examination, autopsies, so once we know the cancer type, it reduces the frustration, particularly if we've determined a cancer type which is can be highly treatable. Now, not all patients with unknown primary cancer at this point in time have highly treatable cancers. So that's frustrating, but that's we can't help that. Uh, to determine the type of cancer is not the same as saying, it's saying that it's a highly treatable cancer. Some are and some aren't. But at least the patient knows and the physician knows what options might be available for that particular cancer, just like when you treat patients with known metastatic cancers. And uh, often we use next generation sequencing, particularly if we have a, in the context of uh, knowing the cancer type by using immunohistochemistry or these molecular classifier tests, we can then test for a particular genetic alterations known to be present in those cancers like lung or breast or colorectal or many others, and determine if there can be a targeted therapy that might be applicable to certain patients or even immunotherapy, which is becoming much more commonly done at this time and used in various advanced cancers. Seems like every week or two there's a new indication. So There's a lot of excitement now in treating patients with unknown primary cancer. Once we learn what type of cancer they have, we can then go on to treat them just like we would patients when we know from the beginning what type of cancer they have. And that's basically, in a nutshell, the bottom line.
1: Well, I think the bottom line from much of what you unpacked here today is that the advancement of precision medicines have created better and, and possibly more treatment options for these particular patients who have cancers of unknown primary.
2: Yes, I think that's correct, only because there's so many categories or types of cancer within this syndrome of what we call unknown primary cancer. I might mention also, I didn't give any details on the validation of the molecular ca- cancer classifiers in patients with unknown primary cancers, which is very important. Uh, because we want to feel confident in the diagnosis. And mm-hmm. there are three main ways I'll just briefly mention that you can validate these assays in unknown primary cancer. And the, the circumstantial evidence is very strong, almost like in a court of law, you know, you don't need absolute direct evidence to convict somebody if you have strong enough circumstantial evidence, and right. we have that for the cancer type ID. But unfortunately, we don't have that for any of the other assays that are out there now who are uh, claiming they can diagnose these patients. Maybe they can, but I'd like to see the validation. The validation is, is rather complex, but three different areas. And again, I won't go into detail, but some patients with unknown primary cancer, later on in their course of their disease, we find their primary. It grows enough that we actually find it. Mm -hmm. And in those patients, if we did the molecular cancer assay at the time of initial diagnosis, then we, we later find where the primary came from. We can then compare the diagnosis from the molecular test with what we actually found later. You following that? Yes. And when we did that in in more than 20 patients, we determined that in 75% of them, a fairly high percentage, the molecular test was correct. So that's a form of validation of the assay in unknown primary cancer. A second way is to compare it simultaneously with immunohistochemical stains, one of the ways, one of the diagnostic testing that I mentioned earlier. And we've done that, and this is all published with the cancer type ID, and the uh, the simultaneous use of immunohistochemistry when they can diagnose a specific cancer, uh, and that's less than half the patients I mentioned earlier. But when you do a molecular cancer classifier assay, in this case, the cancer type ID, it's about 80% correlated with the same diagnosis. In other words, the molecular diagnosis, 80% of the time is the same diagnosis as the immunohistochemistry. Another form of validation. And this is published as well. The third form of validation uh, is when you do a molecular cancer classifier, and it comes up with a specific diagnosis, you can go back and use the same tissue and do immunohistochemical stains to validate the molecular diagnosis. And when we do that, once again, it's about 80% validated when you do it in that direction, using the molecular test first, and then using the immunohistochemical stains to corroborate or validate or uh, determine that the molecular test was indeed correct. So all three of those have been validated for the cancer type ID test. And we need to see that for any test that says they can accurately come up with a specific diagnosis in unknown primary cancer.
1: I appreciate you giving that a little bit more light because... Not only is it important for patients to understand, you know, how the diagnostics inform treatment, but it also affects the coverage and the reimbursement of that test as well.
2: It does. And um, one of the things in medicine that we all want to avoid is having a test out there that claims to be accurate, that in fact, in the patient population we're talking about is not accurate. We don't want that. That can lead to major issues and problems, uh, treatment confusion, uh, and and many other problems. Uh, So we want tests that claim to be uh, useful for patient diagnoses, particularly in this instance, but many others, uh, to be accurate, to be relatively accurate. No test is perfect, but I'll take uh, close to 90% accuracy in the patient population we're talking about any day as a useful test. And that's what we have, for instance, with the cancer type ID. Yeah,
1: agreed. Well, there's a lot of things that um, COVID has affected Dr. Greco with the practice, but um, how are you seeing the impact on these particular patients that you treat? Yeah.
2: I think it's uh, similar to many other patients with known cancer types. Uh, I mean, COVID has has literally paralyzed the medical system for a while. It's getting better now, but patients weren't coming in for their appointments from fear. You understand that they weren't getting treatment. They weren't having, uh, you know, even when we had their tissues tested, many of them weren't, weren't, uh, were afraid to come in. So the, the diagnostic facilities, many of them were, you know, requiring COVID tests before they allow patients in to do scans on them, et cetera. So it's it's been a nightmare for many for many of us and may, for many reasons, but particularly for for patients with uh, with cancers.
1: Thank you for sharing that that uh, that intimate look that a lot of times we don't see um, in sharing uh, your perspective from the position of the the provider the physician treating cancer patients Dr. Tony Greco medical oncologist at Tennessee Oncology hey Dr. Greco I, I realize you know COVID has shut down a lot of other things uh, including Vegas one of your favorite places I heard
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I like to go fishing out there too believe it or not <laughs> <Lake> <laughs> meat out there it's a great it's a great fishing spot
1: Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you for bringing your insight into the treatment and the advances for treating cancers of unknown primary and really helping us better understand the disease. Thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit GetTripello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit PrecisionMedicinePodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine podcast, please share it. They'll thank you and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.